Hello folks, how are you? Hope everything is well with you in your world. Um, thank you so much for joining me for another episode of my podcast, Soundtracking. Um, it is Monday morning as I'm recording this. You're about to have a wonderful journey with a, a guest who's returning us. I'll tell you more about that in one second. But we are coming towards the end of London Film Festival, which I have to say has been a glorious experience, both in terms of watching films, uh, getting to host some Q&As and also heading its way to cinemas next week. June, Denis Villeneuve's brand new film, um, directed and written by Denis Villeneuve and music by Hans Zimmer, stars the likes of Timothy Chalamet, Zendaya, Jason Momoa, Rebecca Ferguson, Oscar Isaac, Josh Brolin, uh, Javier Bardem. Uh, it's an amazing film. I've been lucky enough to host a few Q&As. In fact, this very evening, I am off to London town to host the premiere, um, which is going to be live on TikTok. I've no idea how TikTok works. But anyway, it's going to be live on there. I'm very excited about it. Uh, but I wanted to make sure that I shared this episode with you, um, but also let you know that I recorded conversations with both Hans Zimmer and Denis Villeneuve. So those will be coming to your ears very, very soon. But let's get to the now, shall we? And our latest guest on Soundtracking, as I said previously, has been on twice before and returns for a third time to discuss his documentary about one of the most influential bands of all time. The Velvet Underground. Uh, it's Todd Haynes' idiosyncratic love letter to the visionary punk rockers, featuring really beautiful footage and contributions from founding members John Cale and Maureen Tucker. I love Mo. If for nothing else you watch this documentary just to hear and see Mo talk, I'd highly recommend it. And it's available on Apple TV and, more importantly, selected cinemas. So go and see it if you feel comfortable in the cinema. And it really is a, a treat whether you're a fan of the band or not. You don't have to be into the Velvet Underground to appreciate Todd's craft, filmmaking and the story of this band and these people. Plenty more on that in a second. But first, a word from our friends at Noom. Now, I found the past couple of years have, quite frankly, played havoc with my general good health as a result of pretty bad eating habits. Now, I'm sure I'm not alone, but what to do about it? Well. I remember growing up and I watched my mum and her sisters try every diet under the sun, different ones every month, and nothing was really aimed at long term. So a few of my friends uh, were talking about Noom and its psychology-based approach to eating healthier. So I was all ears. Now, when I say psychology-based, it's basically trying to change your habits, identifying things that might trigger unhealthy eating and looking at ways, better ways to change that. So I signed up and I'm about a couple of months in to my Noom experience and I've got to say I'm really impressed. Now we are all very unique beings, our lifestyles are different and that's where I think Noom really works because it customises a programme specific to you for you. Now there is an element of commitment, I'd say about 10 minutes a day but I recognise the importance of that commitment to help take steps to being healthier and have a healthier eating plan. Working on cognitive behaviour, it helps you on a healthier journey, both in terms of food and exercise. And it's, I find it really empowering. It's about educating and training your brain so that it makes the best choices for you to achieve your goals rather than saying, you can't eat that and you can't eat this. Um, and you know what? I'm learning loads about food as well. What's good for me, what's not. And I find it really fascinating. I'm trying to cut down on sugar. 
and I can already appreciate that I'm doing that by learning about alternatives to reduce the amount of sugar that I eat. I already feel it's having a positive impact on kind of my total well-being, to be honest, my skin, my sleep, my brain. In short, I am in for the long haul and looking forward to seeing the programme through and making positive changes for good. So if you feel like this is something that you could benefit from or you're interested in just finding out some more, then there's an opportunity for you, our lovely soundtracking listeners, to try it out. Just sign up for your trial and get psychology-based support to lose the weight for good at noom.com forward slash sound. That's N-O-O-M dot com slash sound. Lose the weight for good. Sign up for that trial at noom.com slash sound. And so to Todd. Now, ironically, given he's produced a documentary about a rock band, there's less music than normal as he doesn't refer many specific songs, but we'll still get some away, including this. Shiny, shiny, shiny boots of leather With flash girl child in the dark Comes in bells, your servant don't forsake him Hi, Todd. Hey, Edith. How are you? I'm really well, sir. It's lovely to <laughs> see you, if but virtually. Thank you. Like, <laughs> likewise. Um, oh, it's so great to have you back for a for a third visit on uh, on the podcast. And what's even better is the fact that last oh. time you were here, you um, were teasing us hugely about this wonderful documentary. And finally, we get to see it. And oh, it's so great. Congratulations. Oh, Edith, thank you so much. That really means a lot to me. People can, I'm just going to say it, people can be lazy with documentaries and they can be lazy in the way that they tell a story and what they want to say in a documentary. And and, and this is just a feast for the senses. Mm. Uh, and the memories, I think, as well, and the way that you've told the story. You know, look, this was such a unique experience for me. And I've always loved um, cutting I started to edit all my early feature films way back when, but you know what happens. You and I, and you know, I was making all the sets and props for my early Karen Carpenter Barbie movie and all that stuff. And as you move along in your career, you work with fantastic people, and those collaborations take over, and they're such a great part of filmmaking. But this one put it all back in our hands. So it was me and Afonso, my 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 editor from several years and uh, someone I'd never worked with before, Adam Kernitz. And we all three had avids and we were all cutting away because there was so much material to get our hands on. And then COVID hit and, and Fonzie, Fonzie and I were in Los Angeles and we got quarantined together. But it was just like, it was such a, a rescue basically to get through <laughs> those COVID years with this project to go to every day and to get inside, you know, to get my hands on it in this way. It was really gratifying. I wanted to go back, uh, if you don't mind, before I kind of talk more in depth about the doc, was was to find out what your journey with the Velvet Underground was in terms of what was your, your journey in relationship to to them as a band, to them as individuals, to them as, as creatives prior to making this documentary. I first heard the band in college after already knowing Bowie's work, listening to Roxy Music, loving Patti Smith, the you know, punk 
uh, musicians and, and bands. And living in Los Angeles, where there was a big punk scene, there was a missing root to all of this that I hadn't known. And when I landed in college, it almost felt like instantaneous that it was time the, the curtain was lifted, <laughs> you know, and and all of a sudden you're like, oh, right. OK, this is what preceded all of this other extraordinary music and what made all of it sort of possible. Lester Bangs once said modern music began with the Velvet Underground. Hmm. And that's that's quite a statement. But I think. I think we all know what that means in, in our own personal experiences with the music and the kinds of topics and the sort of darker themes that became yeah. available to musicians and, and musical artists after the Velvets that really, even with everything going on in the 1960s, hadn't really been opened up before that. I think that's so true. I mean, I, I see them as being a, a gateway for so many creatives in terms yeah. of no one had the balls to to write lyrics about the stuff that they were writing about and, and experiment in the way that they were and cross-pollinate with all these other art forms as well, which, you know, all influenced each other. And the idea of them being the kind of house band at the factory and what what they must have absorbed from that but what everybody else around them must have absorbed as well it felt like it was the first of something that I don't know if you agree but it feels like it's never been not replicated but no one's really been able to do anything like that again I can't think of another movement in the arts as a kind of you know bigger picture that's had that kind of um giant step forward really I I I agree and I I think you completely describe the conditions under which that was true, a lot of them accidental, circumstantial, and geographic. Like, mm. people have to sort of be all crammed together in a place and swapping ideas for that kind of multimedia curiosity about, wow, I'm a visual artist, but I want to start making films. And wow, I'm a filmmaker, but I really want to start exploring music. And how does music play into the soundtrack of the film I'm making? All of these questions were starting to like bleed from one you know, vein to the next in, in New York at this particular time. And this band has this, it's really hard to find a parallel set of conditions under which an avant-garde film movement for one thing, but also just this very fertile culture of curiosity and artistic activity was fomenting in one in one moment than the Velvets. It's the, yeah, it's the freedom of expression really that it kind of gave, I feel. Yeah. And, you know, look, this is something I really wanted to try to tap into in the movie and I think it was really important. It gets a little lost in the years of finally moving toward canonization and fully getting the recognition, of course, the band always deserved. But there was something else about this place and time that that was really distinct. And it had a lot to do with how overtly gay the central players were. Mm-hmm. Andy Warhol and so many people in the factory, Lou Reed's curiosity and, and, and exploration into underground gay scenes. But that, that was, it was bigger than just who was actually practicing gay or not. 
It was about an attitude. It infused the whole notion of what popism was, a way of looking at the the bigger, the larger world through this sort of frame. And it infused the idea of camp that Susan Sontag would talk about. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the idea of the dandy and all of these old, some of these very old ideas that were kind of having new relevance in the 60s, but very much in New York. And what's so interesting about it is it, when you consider it as a sort of set of ideas that they didn't even recognize were their word necessarily so unique, it's when they confronted the larger counterculture. In our movie, it's like when they go to Los Angeles. All of a sudden you realize, wow, the larger counterculture is kind of square and kind <laughs> of, you know, kind of, of heteronormative <laughs> and kind of all these things that, that I think even these hipsters in New York didn't fully realize until that happened. Did you know, at what point did you kind of have an idea of how you wanted, because this is your first documentary and and there's the footage that you have is 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 wonderful. You know, we I think we all think we know about the Velvet Underground, but the way that you've told the story and the way that you've both in terms of the the interviews, but the archive, but the way that you've chosen to to represent it and and show it visually, I think is so clever. And so you kind of you you just you're sort of being fed off it constantly. It's brilliant. How did you come to the the decision on how how you would make this documentary? I mean, you know, you know, it's so it was sort of um, the conditions around this band, because the band, unlike most bands of this kind of influence, they don't have concert footage, live concert footage of the years that they're putting out records. They don't have promotional material. They don't have the normal images and, and production that most bands would have. Instead, what they have is this absolutely distinct series of films that Andy Warhol made. Mm. Uh, and they have close relationships to all these other filmmakers, Jack Smith, uh, Marie Menken, Barbara Rubin, Piero Helixer, Jonas Mikas. And so all of these filmmakers, and, and again, all these filmmakers are doing very different kinds of experimental films. It's not like a monolith. They're really diverse they have their own sensibility, their own textures and instincts and kind of languages. So all of that stuff was basically handed to me as the only way to visualize this place and time. Also, the, you know, amazing photo archives by numerous, you know, and later to be celebrated uh, photographers that covered the factory years and the band at this time the way the band looked. I mean, all these things, you know, the, 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 the first album, its graphics, the Andy Warhol um, cover, what Nico looked like, how strange an, uh, an element she <laughs> was imposed upon this already fully formed band by the accident of stumbling into the factory and being told by Paul Morrissey, you got to put the, the model from Germany you know, as your singer. You can't really sing. Probably. Yeah, you can't <laughs> sing and you're the strangest sounding thing. And you you answer the question we ask of you five minutes later. Here she comes. You better watch your step. She's gone to break. 
clan Cause everybody knows The things she does to please She's just a little tease See the way she There's nobody like Nico, and so all of, and there's nobody like Maureen Tucker. So this oh, is also a bit. I love seeing Mo. Right? I, I love seriously. I, I want a, a Mo standalone doc. Oh, I just want a God. Mo doc. I mean, to think that this band at a pretty male-dominated, you know, culture and time and and genre of me of rock and roll features two of the most singular women in rock and roll history in one band in 1966. That alone is so remarkable. Uh, so anyway, this, this, the visuals that you talk about were pretty much inherited in the, in the material. I just wanted to try, and we also got great interviews by the, by the people we went after who, were, who I decided would just be people who were there and, and yeah. excluding a lot of brilliant people who weren't there who could tell you a lot about the band. I wanted the images and the music to still lead the experience that the audience would have watching the movie. Were, were John and Mo particularly, were they very open to the idea of when you approached them about, you know, being interviewed? And Yeah, it was sort of the, on the terms, particularly John, um, who we kind of started with and needed to kind of get his approval for it as a concept before we could really move forward. And Mo took a little was a little harder to f locate <laughs> she's lives in 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 Georgia and she's uh takes care of her grandkids and is amazing, is amazing right in my mind she is Frances McDormand in Nomadland <laughs> basically it, but in 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 a very single house in a very yeah. single place yeah. not moving around and dancing in the sunset but um <laughs> but man we went to her when we finally connected she was like no i didn't get todd's letter no i didn't get any of these messages and of course i'd love to do this and so we went out to 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 meet her there and set up our little crew in the local little movie house, you know, tiny little movie house in her, in her town. And man, it was just like, you know, she, she's so, she's so grounded. She's so, I think she was a little, at first it was like, this was more people than usually um, descend upon her for a Velvet Underground documentary. But then she just relaxed and we, and I relaxed and that's, that was a new process for me, just how to interview people. You know what this is like. Like, this is new for it's me. It's hard. It's tough. <laughs> and, it's a, and it's an improvisation, right? You, you, you might have your questions and you do all your research, but where the conversation goes, it has to go the way it goes, I think, right? I, lear I learned or I tried to learn that <laughs> in the process. But, yeah, it was it – was, I still – I, I'm still a fan to the degree that I'm pinching myself going, John Cale is in my movie, knows who I am, you know, gave wow. his gave his blessing to this. Right. And uh, and yeah, it's, it's pretty I'm a lucky I'm a lucky guy. I don't I don't I don't forget that. He looks great. He's, oh, can he's... you he looks so great. 
so great. <laughs> I, I mean, can you imagine being Mo's grandkids though and going, oh yeah, my 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 gran was the uh, was the drummer in Velvet Underground. It's like you know one of those days at school we go, what do your parents do? What Seriously. do your family do? His her <laughs> grandson came. I just met him. The other day, he came to the New York Film Festival. Now, Mo, Mo was going to come. John Cale was going to come. John Cale was going to perform. He had planned an entire concert after the film showed. And then COVID got in the way and all this stuff, you know. And it, it didn't happen. And, and I understand we're going to see him in Los Angeles next on my trip. And finally, I'll, he'll get to see the finished film in a theater and I get to be with him. Right. But Mo's grandson came <laughs> by himself to the the premiere in New York. He's this totally lovely, long-haired kid with piercings on his face. And, and he looked like a little angel, a little like hardcore angel, you know. And I said, how did you get here? He said, oh, I just, you know, I got on a plane and I, I'm staying in a hotel. And it was just <laughs> like, oh, man, this means this is pretty cool. Music's an interesting question to ask you about with this film because obviously, you know, there's the subject matter of the of, of of the doc, but but knowing where to have music and where not to have music and how to use the music because I love I love how you start the film and you have this kind of almost sensual slap in the face with this sonic mm. the way that this the sound moves around and then suddenly it's just this wave of sound which is it's kind of going, Okay, I'm paying attention. <laughs> it's so good. And I just wanted to know what your kind of thought process was with regards to going through the film and where music should sit and how it should sit and how it would help. Obviously, with the story, when certain songs were, you know, even when it's the, um, oh, I've forgotten the name of the song, the, with the dance. The ostrich. The ostrich, yeah, yeah. You know, and all that kind of stuff. And yeah. Because it, it could be easy to overload it with just great music from them. Yeah. But, but you've, you've, balance is really good. I feel like you might have held back slightly so that you didn't overpower it. Yeah. Well, that's cool to hear from you. One thing we really wanted to do was spend some time in tracing the origins of the sound. And that, that meant, you know, tracking kind of at a, at a certain pace where the avant-garde strains were coming from with John Cale, what that sounded like, the, the drone music that he was experimenting with, with Lamont, and then Lou's evolution, you know, with his early little, you know, bebop and R&B style bands from college, high school and college. And then finally, that garage song at Pickwick Records, The Ostrich, which finally brought Lou and John Cale together. Okay, I want everybody to settle down now. We've got some new we're going to show you next. So I'll knock you dead when we come outside your head. You get ready? You said here we go. Yeah, all right, come on. Come on. Come on, let's go. Yeah. All right. Everybody get down on your face, man. Get ready, yeah. Okay, come on. Hey, good, yo. But we take our time with all that so that you almost are in a dream state 
where you forgot, maybe even forgotten what this movie is about, you know? <laughs> and then when it finally lands, what I hoped is that when you finally get to the first Velvet's track in earnest with the vocal from the first record, which, we, which is Venus in First, you, you have that shock of the, some, the new you have the shock of hearing something with all of its various components crashing together finally mm -hmm. and finding itself the way people might have experienced at the time. So that, that's, that's part of the trance, I guess, that we wanted to sort of cast on the, on the audience. I like it being a kind of origin story of each of the characters mm. in a way to kind of a musical origin story. It's such a, a clever way of thinking about it because you're right, it does kind of go, oh, now it makes <laughs> even more sense. Right. Because it's, 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 you know, you learn so much about, about them, but also just what they felt they wanted to say and what they kind of felt they, they wanted to do and what they wouldn't want to do as well. And I think that's really interesting. That's so important, I think, what they wouldn't want to do and that, and and John and and Lou, they describe this as wanting to a disdain that they wanted to that they felt toward the world outside them. And you know, one has to rem remember, like this is the 1960s, where so much is going on in in rock and roll, in R and B, in soul music, in jazz, like. This is an, a remarkable time to have to decide to stand in opposition to it and to stake your territory and to have disdain <laughs> for what's around you. It's pretty interesting. It takes a lot of balls, you know, and, and takes a lot of grit. And I think that any artistic movement kind of needs to both be influenced by what's going on around them and be open, but then ultimately say no. This is who we are and why we are the way we are. And they did that. And I think um, and I even think the drugs that they that they used contributed to them being in isolation from what was around them in the world, you know, and put them in a yeah. place very much really close together. Those two. Was it hard to work out where to end it? Because, you know, the interesting thing about them, and I wondered if you asked John and Mo this, was that how they feel about the fact that they are one of a very small number of bands who are maybe more important now than they were back then, you know, in terms of, obviously they were, they were successful, they were inspirational and still are massively inspirational to new musicians and, and creatives, but... But was that a hard thing to decide on what, how you would end and where the end point would be with it? it, it that's such a astute uh, question because I think uh, it was very hard because the band is is it's you know it's a lot like Orson Welles. It's like starting with such a comprehensive piece of work, and though there's so many interesting things that he did after Citizen Kane, it it became a kind of searching, drifting. Hmm. career of how to maintain artistic integrity and independence um, when it wasn't all coming together with a bang the way he started. And, and yet this all, this all fused and burned out very quickly, um, the Velvet Underground. And I think it parallels the sort of degeneration of the 60s energies 
in general, mm. as the band started to sort of lose its its center motivating factor, which was the relationship between John and Lou. Amy Taubin, who's in the film, really talks about it almost, you know, with a certain not uh, horror might be is too strong a word, but but she was there. She felt that elevation, that unbelievable sort of sense that of possibility that the mid '60s made artists feel when they were yeah. in certain places like this, and then a very quick dispersal of that of that energy into a lot of chaotic competing voices. Um, and she feels the film demonstrates that. That said, look, there, and, and some people will still say, oh, you don't spend enough time on Loaded. And, you know, and I, at one point, one of my editors was like, do you think we should end it when John leaves the band? I was like, no, no, we can't. I don't want to do that. I really think what Lou Reed did after John Cale left, the third Velvet's Under, Velvet Underground record is a extraordinary and coherent record. Mm-hmm. You know, an, an amazingly beautiful record and completely different from the first record and from the second record, you know? Can you say, I've come to hate my body and all that it requires in this maybe is is an, a, a record full of possibilities. It's not bound together the way it doesn't have Moe's drumming on it. You know, I think that's a real factor, but yeah. it's almost a preview of what Lou's amazing solo career was going to just exhibit in the years to come. Janice said when she was just five years old, there was nothing happening at all. the Isle of Wight festival about must be about 15 16 years ago actually it was pretty amazing um just kind of like that gobsmacked uh, watching him on that main stage wow um before we run out of time quickly you mentioned it at the beginning your your carpenter's barbie film i really hope it gets at some point in the world that it gets the chance to be shown properly um, and I didn't know how you felt about that, but I just feel like it would be so great to kind of 
to bookend an evening almost with you to have that mm. and then the the underground dock and then and talk about kind of your journey really through talking about artists and the way that you've chosen to represent them creatively and stuff but I really hope at some point that that film again we get to see it no I know I felt the same way we there was recently a, a restoration done of the film by UCLA and the Sundance Institute and it and Edith, I have this version of it that looks so gorgeous now. And and it and it did generate some initial conversations among lawyers about fair use mm-hmm. exceptions that we might be able to pursue legally. And I need to get back into it because I think there there may be ways in which it's so remarkable in today's world where everything seems available to literally have a movie that's that still can't be shown publicly, yeah. you know. Um, so someday it'll it'll see the light of day. I've I've had a couple. They've let me have that cat, small caveat where I can show the film in the context of my other work um, on under sort of narrow, yeah, terms, and yeah. I've I've completely exploited that <laughs> to whenever <laughs> I can. But um, yeah, I should. I'd love to continue to. Uh, well, listen, I hope you've enjoyed this experience of making your first documentary because I've thoroughly enjoyed watching it. It's been brilliant. And I hope um, we get the chance to to talk about whether it's the Carpenters film, whether it's the Peggy Lee film, whatever it's going to be. I, I look forward to our next conversation, Todd. It's always an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Me too, Edith. It was so great. From the soundtrack to the Velvet Underground, that's Sister Ray rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with Todd Haynes. Sister Ray, in fact, my favourite record shop in London town. There we go. Now, my huge thanks to Todd for taking the time to talk to us. Always a pleasure to catch up with him. And you can find both of our previous conversations at edithbowman.com, along with every single other episode of the podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK. And please do subscribe to our YouTube channel uh, for Soundtracking Extra. Next up, well... The thing is, we have a plethora of guests, so you're just going to have to subscribe and tune in to find out whether it may well be Edgar Wright and Christy Wilson-Cairns joining me to discuss Last Night in Soho, or will it be Hans Zimmer, Denis Villeneuve talking about June? I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. (laughs) 